This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of Real Estate is Your Business is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Hi, I'm Preston Pesek. I am the co-founder and CEO of Spacious. What I love about real estate is that we actually are able to design the environment that we want to live in. You know, I come at it really almost from an architect's perspective where we have an opportunity to make the world as good as we decide we want it to be. And I think there's just a ton of opportunity to make life better by constructing better cities, making buildings more hospitable, um, and overall just improving the quality of life by how we program and use the assets of the earth. Here's a trend we haven't covered yet on this show, co-working. Another we haven't covered, restaurants. Let's put them together for a minute. What if co-working wasn't merely a redesign of an office space, but instead made use of restaurant and retail spaces when they are not in use, and filling them with the people building the next great businesses? Coming up, a company that transforms unused space into a citywide network of stylish, productive, distributed workspaces where you can meet, work, and get stuff done. From New York City, you're listening to Real Estate Is Your Business, powered by Preview, a smart online real estate brokerage providing expert advice without the high fees. With Thomas Kutzman and Scott Pollock. Preston, thanks for joining us today. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here in the in the studio. And I wanted to kick things off in the way people work has changed dramatically. The way people think about office space has changed dramatically in you know a more technologically driven remote world. Uh, I'm curious. Spacious is one of the heavyweights of the co-working world. How do you differentiate yourself currently, mm-hmm. and where do you see that going? Yeah, so a big point of differentiation is we've designed the user experience of the product to be as frictionless as possible. So I think if, you, if you're shopping for some sort of solution for yourself in the co-working space, you would find uh, a number of, you know, uh, scheduling a visit or a tour with some sort of person who works at that co-working space and then maybe coming up with an application and doing some, you know, research to figure out where the right location is. Spacious is literally like walk in and check in, like walking off the street. Anybody can walk in without a reservation. And, uh, and the whole digital product experience is designed for a seamless, instant connection to the community, to the space, to the Wi-Fi to self serve yourself a cup of coffee it is as hospitable and accessible as any other place that we have seen um is it fair to say then to tom's point that that you know you're competing in the co-working industry or mm-hmm. are you competing against something different altogether like the coffee shop industry which seems to be the seamless alternative there yeah i think i think you know if you were to say one experience or the other and without mentioning other brands too specifically. But if, if we're looking at WeWork versus Starbucks, I think that Spacious is somewhere in between this, those two as those are either ends of two spectrums. So somewhere in between co-working as we define it as kind of just another way to divide up and sell an office and coffee shops, which is kind of a food and beverage hospitality concept, but has some seating for people. I think we're almost more on the coffee shop end of the spectrum. 
um, and I would I would view ourselves competitive there. You know, another thing that distinguishes us um, is this idea of unlimited access under a single monthly subscription. Right? We've designed our consumer product and the business model for that from the beginning, where we say, okay, I want to just pay one low monthly fee and get the whole network, as opposed to you know, going to one space and having a co you know, have to commute to that one co-working location every day of the week. Spacious really says like, let's open up the city and allow you to drop in everywhere as the standard primary product versus kind of an afterthought. Right. And just for those that aren't aware, uh, it Spacious started by basically helping excess capacity of restaurants um, for those tenants, landlords to make money or partner on those spaces mm-hmm. uh, in the off hours, yep. um, but also provide a, a nice alternative to working from home for the remote uh, worker. Yeah. Um, you know, we started off uh, taking advantage of the fact that there are beautiful restaurants. Uh, the tenants and or the landlords have invested a great deal of uh, capital and effort into making those environments hospitable and, you know, very appealing. And then they sit empty before 5 p.m. every day. And, I, you know, we looked at it and we just said that's an, it's an enormous waste of an otherwise very valuable and beautiful asset. Um, you know, given the rise of the independent workforce and the people who have the option to work from home or to work remotely on some days of the week, um, turning that kind of environment into a hospitable place where people can stay productive and connected for work is really where we started. And the advantage there is that we're doing deals with restaurant tenants uh, under a simple kind of very easy to understand license agreement. Um, and it allows us to scale very quickly across the kind of tenant layer. As soon as you start to talk to landlords, the conversation becomes more complicated. Um, and so, you know, that's the next phase of our growth. But to start and to kind of jumpstart the marketplace for Spacious, the restaurants were a, a perfect opportunity to to enter. So the, you know, speaking about those two different customers of like the individual worker and the restaurant itself, I think the appeal to the worker uh, makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Having a space to go, not feeling like you have eyes on you by every hour to see if you bought another cup of coffee. Yep. Um, get that. But for the, the restaurant itself, um, what is the appeal to them of, of staffing a space or opening up and, you know, exposing it to a risk of someone tearing a seat or making a mess or what have yeah. you um, before they're selling their core product, which is the food? Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, we've basically distilled it down into three value propositions for a restaurant partner. One is we send them a monthly check. So we share our profits with the restaurant partners. So if you if, if they've leased a very expensive space and they have high operating costs, we can help to offset those costs of occupying that prime real estate. Second is um, anytime we are mentioned in the press or anytime we do our own digital marketing through uh, through our own acquisition channels, their name, their location, their address gets mentioned. So they get free marketing exposure through our efforts. And then the third one is really almost the one that most of them are excited about. We fill their space with a room full of people who are probably hungry at 5 p.m. And so, you know, for a restaurant partner, we make it very easy for them to also partner with us. The the other thing that we do, you mentioned staffing. Spacious has its own staff and we kind of manage our own distributed hospitality company so that a restaurant doesn't have to worry about hiring, training, managing, or even insuring the space while we're there. So we have our own insurance policy um, and we cover any sort of, uh, we have, we've operated for two years in, you know, more than 20 locations and we've had like zero insurance claims. Like it's a very low risk proposition uh, and we make it very easy for restaurants to partner with us because, you know, they may be skeptical at the beginning and once they start to operate with us, they realize that 
gosh, even if they didn't pay us anything, uh, it doesn't really cost us anything. Our, our normal state of operations is not disrupted in any way by what Spacious does. And if, and if anything, it's, it's a net positive uh, for the marketing exposure and the new customers. Yeah. And I've, I've been in many of Spacious and I've kind of, as a foodie myself, appreciate to a degree when there's some prep work going on, some yeah. smells coming out of the kitchen during yeah, yeah. the, uh, you know. And it's free marketing. It's free foot traffic. To your point of like, you know, a lot of co-working spaces do these you know, happy hours or there's, you know, beer on tap. Um, but they could stick around and also have a, a more luxurious experience than, you know, because some feel that co-working spaces can give off a, a frat culture yes. where you can give off, you know, various cultures because you can have a very high-end restaurant or a more yeah. casual and it can really fit with the, the customer's choice. It's a very big difference between a beer keg and a wine list in the, in the mind of the consumer. And it actually draws a different crowd. You know, I think we've, we've, we've managed to attract uh, a more sophisticated, a, sty- a more stylish, or, or those who, you know, identify with that kind of experience versus something that feels a little fratty. In a, in a well, speaking, speaking of that kind of, that the vibe, <laughs> is there ever a conflict between the restaurant knows they have these captive patrons in mm-hmm. the space during the day, um, but those individual workers do want to just use the, the table and chairs and not yeah. necessarily be overwhelmed by what the restaurants may incentivized to push. Yeah. I mean, when you're a spacious member, you don't have to buy anything from the restaurant, right? That's part of the deal is you've got a membership with, with our service and it gives you access to these spaces to use for your own, you know, your own use during the day. You don't have to buy anything. You can bring in during the day food from the outside. And most people do for lunch. Um, we have a few spaces that do offer a simultaneous lunch service that they can order from the kitchen that's on site. Um, but in all cases, spacious members have, you know, no obligation to participate in the, in the, in the restaurant services. I'm curious on it lends itself very well or the the model lends itself very well for that remote individual worker. Um, but a lot of co-working spaces are in the press talking more and more about enterprise and going, mm-hmm. you know, upstream, downstream, depending on, you know, who want, how do you want to talk about it? But yeah. how do you look at that individual worker versus the, that enterprise play? Yeah, I mean, the individual workers uh, are the ones who immediately adopt the spacious product. Those, those are like the early adopters and the enthusiast about, you know, as soon as this opens in your neighborhood, it's like a fantastic upgrade from a coffee shop. You know, who comes after as we as we start to get more locations and we see more, you know, people who have a traditional job with a regular company coming to use spacious? It looks more like an employer who offers this as a perk to someone who has the flexibility to work from home a few days a week or to work remotely. A lot of employers will require that you work remotely. So if you've got an office somewhere in the middle of the country or in San Francisco and you have your employees come to New York for a few days to do client meetings, business deals, et cetera, sales, um, they can come and use the spacious network while they're in a city that or a neighborhood that they're unfamiliar with. So it becomes kind of an extension of a, an employer's office rather than a replacement of that office. And we've managed to do it at a price point that makes that sustainable and palatable for an employer to say, you know, for a hundred or 150 bucks a month for my employee, um, you know, I'm more than happy to offer that as, as kind of an alternative to trying to figure out what it would cost to lease an office in that, in that city or that market. Do you see that kind of enterprise angle as the end game or the kind of individual consumer as a big enough market and, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, low enough cost of acquisition to be itself kind of the end game and not just an entry point. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's going to like, we've got a lot to learn about how that marketplace evolves. I think, um, 
even if the majority of our customers become, let's say, traditional enterprises, um, we will always need to have the customer experience address the consumer, right? It's very much um, an individualized decision to whether or not you want to adopt Spacious as a work lifestyle option. Um, and I think if an employer is paying for a perk and the employee isn't using it, it's not going to work, right? So in all cases, we are you know, establishing our consumer brand and all of our kind of acquisition channels to really face the consumer first. It's going to be almost like a B2C first and then kind of will evolve into maybe a B2B or to be a B2C, right? So like it's, it's, it'll be a hybrid, I think, of who we address and who the ultimate uh, customer is. But in all cases, the, the end user is, is who we're always focused on from an experience perspective. And I suppose this is also the way that, you know, others in the co-working industry have evolved as well, focusing mm-hmm. on the individual and then eventually realizing this can move up market. So it yeah. doesn't seem all that unfamiliar. Right. Right. I think there is, on that point, I think there is an opportunity to appeal to a larger company who wants to offer their employees something that feels like it's plugged into the startup scene or the kind of freelancer lifestyle to where there's benefits in saying, okay, I'm going to give my employees the opportunity to interface and to kind of be in the same space in the same community with others who are self-deterministic, right? If a company is looking for a way to inject some new life and new energy and innovative creative thinking into their employee culture, they can give them a spacious membership. And so we want to, we, we never want to ignore the freelancer individual as we start to kind of make a hybrid community of both because I think both of them benefit even those individuals when they when they run into others who are professionals in let's say institutional employment um, they can also benefit from those perspectives so you know really understanding if you if you if somebody who works at Deloitte for example um, Deloitte has a kind of a work from anywhere policy for their employees um, they specialize in accounting and valuation and all the things that Deloitte does um, Freelancers can probably have a meaningful conversation with uh, with someone who can help them figure out how to, you know, make their books tight as a, as a freelancer. You know, as a freelancer, you're kind of a single person business entity, a taxable entity that you have to file taxes every year. And unless you have the kind of infrastructure of a larger institution, you have to figure out all those problems yourself. And so what Spacious can start to do by mixing the community of institutional employees alongside freelancers creates a really nice synergy between both groups. So that word community is used quite a lot these days mm-hmm. and I think is means different things to different people and different companies. I'm curious how you define that term and how that manifests for Spacious in yeah. terms of nurturing a community. Yeah, Spacious has an interesting challenge because we're not in one location and we're not in we – we are a distributed footprint. We have multiple cities. And so how do you define, you know, what the spacious community is where it expresses itself very differently on the Upper East Side versus the Upper – the Lower East Side, for example, right? So Lower East Side, you know, customers are very different from Upper East Side customers. That's for anyone who's not in New York. There's a very kind of distinct persona around those two neighborhoods. Um, so, you know, looking at what the – you know, how we design community at Spacious, we address it by offering com- like Spacious-sponsored community events and programming and we've segmented, you know, who we communicate with in the spacious community where we, you know, if you are, have self-identified as, you know, an accountant who is interested to meet with other people who are in this industry or if you're a designer or a developer, software engineer, and you want to meet people who are in this other industry, we can start to architect these these relationships between the community. But we're not going to be able to, nor would we want to, like – blast everybody with the same community message. So we kind of have to have this, it's a little bit of a patchwork and Spacious kind of needs to be a a little bit of an agnostic platform for whatever your local community is to emerge in its, 
it relative to its own locus, right? But if you let's say you're a spacious member in a city other than New York and you're in New York for work, yeah. What interaction on the platform could a customer be able to distinguish that? Are there reviews? Is it does it yeah. describe the different locations and vibes of the neighborhood? It does. So like if you go to spacious.com and just you know read the descriptions of the spaces, you'll get a sense of what the vibe of that particular location looks like. You know, what's coming in our in our digital product is the next layer of kind of social interaction and the ability to really identify who your community, who your sub-community is within Spacious. And that's going to be a, a, a you know an increasing uh feature that we're going to start to really explore and test. Um, you know, the business is, it's two years old and we've, we've established a name for ourselves at this point, but it's still relatively early in terms of how this really shapes out. I think, um, there's a lot of companies out there who will prescribe and kind of brand what they think community is like, you know, put a flag in the ground. I think spacious is taking an approach where we're going to be very responsive to really learn and listen to what people actually want. You know, I think a part of our ethos and even part of the way that we designed our product is when you walk into spacious, it's everything is kind of opt in as opposed to, you know, forced on you. And so, uh, an example of that is like, if you don't need table service at spacious, if you don't want to be interrupted by a waiter or a server when you're at a table, it's never going to happen, right? But there's always a hospitable host there on site. You can walk up and tell them, hey, I've got a guest coming. Like, uh, you know, where's the restroom? Or, or you know, is there another location in this other neighborhood that I'm going to next? So the hospitality and the service is there, as is the community. But it's only if you are seeking it proactively versus passively, you know, being bombarded with it. There's an interesting, like we, we actually take some cues from uh, Danny Meyer's uh, hospitality culture, the, the founder of Union Square Hospitality. Um, and he kind of, he has this idea that uh, hospitality is something that happens for you not something that happens to you. <laughs> and we've, we, we try to embody that in the way we, we do community as well. Right. Yeah. You're not trying to force your social you know, visions on people uh, exactly. like some other, uh, other venues. Yeah. I mean, we um, also want to really celebrate that diversity, right? Cause we do, I think we do have a very diverse group and the, the product itself is a generic utility that appeals to a a lot of different kinds of people. And so like for us to prescribe what we think community is for, for us is, uh, you know, I think it's a little preemptive. Coming up, we'll get a little bit deeper into how you've been able to grow so quickly in a, a short period of time, uh, mm -hmm. where you're going next and how you're going to expand that footprint uh, beyond restaurants. Uh, but first, uh, as is a custom on the show, uh, you've been kind enough to bring a snack for uh, snack time. Nice. Nice. Uh, what, um, uh, what did he bring to share today? So I went to Bread's Bakery, which is a local New York institution. Uh, and we got some, I think this is, uh, yeah, they got it right. It's Bobka. They're famous for their Bobka. Chocolate Bobka. You should name the place Bobka Bakery. <laughs> it's amazing. I've never had their bread. So anyway, free plug for Bread's Bakery. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, uh, yeah. I'm a big fan of Bobka. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll definitely dig in here, uh, get some plates and, uh. Yeah, yeah, there's some plates here. Is, is there something about Bobka or this bakery that attracted you to it? Seinfeld fan, perhaps? <laughs> the Did Seinfeld you get the better Bobka? I got the, the, it's not the lesser Bobka, it's the chocolate Bobka. Superior <laughs> Bobka. <laughs> so we got the right one. Um, but no, I think uh, Bobka is, are we still recording this piece? Okay, <laughs> sorry. Um, it's an undeniable favorite. It's chocolate interlaced within you know, delicious bread. How could you go wrong with point. Bobka? Plus it has the funniest, coolest name ever. It is pretty, kind of, <laughs> I think about like a Russian grandma every time I 
It's a babka. Yeah, you can't go wrong with babka. Uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll dig in and uh, we'll be right back. Cool. Are you looking to buy a home in New York City? Get more with Preview's industry-leading smart buyer rebate. Seamlessly search listings on Preview's end-to-end buyer platform, purchase your home with the expert advice of a local agent, plus receive up to 2% cash back thanks to Preview's smart buyer commission rebate. Smart buyers get more with Preview. Go to previewapp.com backslash buyer that's previewapp.com backslash buyer yeah getting getting back into it here uh you know first off thanks thank you for the babka that was uh delicious um haven't had a good babka in probably months so (laughs) thank you for uh thank you for bringing that you bet um i wanted to dig deeper into where things are going for spacious, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could argue that there's a an arms race in co-working right now. Who can raise more money than the next, you mm-hmm. know, next great concept? So as you think of restaurants, was a great launching pad for you, uh, as you said earlier. Uh, where do you go from here? How do you expand? Are you? Is it other excess capacity beyond <clears throat> restaurants? Is it just hit mm-hmm. every restaurant in the world? Yeah. What does that look like in the next wave of spacious growth? Yeah, so we're going to continue to roll out restaurant locations because they are uh, – we, we know how to do them well and we can do them uh, quickly and at scale and with minimal cost. Um, we've kind of got a dialed-in machine to do that. We're going to add to that though. Um, upon popular requests from all of our customers is I need to work past 5 p.m. And I think anybody who offers uh, you know, a workplace solution or some way to stay productive um, – you got to be able to offer the 24-7 clock, you know. And so our, our version of that is going to be um, adding a whole new layer of spaces that are going to take dedicated occupancy and otherwise vacant retail storefronts. Some of those storefronts are going to be uh, restaurants that have vacated and no longer have a tenant. And some of them are going to be completely, you know, white box retail that we can fit out ourselves. Uh, probably not with construction, uh, but really we're just with uh, smart interiors to make sure that we can spin something up very quickly. Um, you know, the supply side model for that. So when I say supply side model, I, 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 I look at our business as a two-sided marketplace where supply historically has been restaurants. Demand is subscriptions to, you know, distributed work, you know, distributed work solution. Um, <clears throat> the supply is going to be not only, you know, historically we've done license agreements with restaurant tenants. We're now going to do license agreements with landlords. So similar to a lot of other pop-up concepts where they do a license instead of a long-term lease. Um, ours is going to be a little bit different in that it's kind of, it's perpetual up until the moment that that landlord leases it out to a much longer term tenant, right? So we're going to preserve that optionality for that landlord to do that. And in exchange for that option, we're paying something that's going to be below market rents for retail. Um, <clears throat> so you know, if you look at what we have to do to achieve this, um, the network density and the kind of number of locations that need to be available for the customer, should one of these spaces go dark, if a landlord exercises their option, it it needs to be there, right? So unless you have first populated the city with a number of locations that operate as restaurants or as other spaces, you kind of need to do that with enough density before you can start to get into a little bit higher 
little bit higher capital um, outlay to get one of these spaces in the ground, um, but it offers a much better, more well-rounded product for the customer. Does that create a you know an arms race internally in terms of the having to grow both supply and demand at a proportionate rate? Because mm-hmm. as you go into uh, opening your own spaces, ultimately, yeah. um, you're increasing your network density, but you're also kind of just uh, amortizing yeah. your costs across the you know comparable subscriber base, and unless you raise prices. Yeah. So, well, we don't intend to raise prices anytime soon. Um, I think what we will be able to offer with this kind of nighttime network or the 24-7 network, uh, I think we'll have some price elasticity there. But you're right. You you have to balance the growth of a two-sided marketplace so you don't get overextended on supply without enough demand and that you're also, you know, serving your customer with enough locations to where it's valuable enough that they find it, you know, a compelling purchase decision. So, you know, those, the relationship between supply and demand is something to be carefully managed with respect to how much cash are you using to get there and how fast are you growing the network. These are the conversations that happen with our, you know, with our board in terms of strategically, like, you know, this is our, this is what it takes to spend one of these up. This is how quickly it stabilizes with cash flow positive customers at that location. And this is how the actual dynamics of the network operate when you have customers migrating potentially from one location to another? Like, are you cannibalizing your own network or does it create kind of a network effect where both become more valuable because you've got both there? Yeah. And it seems like the, the, the a decision like that is something that has to be very, you have to be very confident in rolling out a product that can yeah. fundamentally alter the economics of, unit economics of your product. Yes. Whereas, you know, oftentimes in the tech industry and having any companies, even in the real estate business that have raised from the tech in, investors, yep. You think about product development very differently. You just mm-hmm. ship it, get it out there quickly, test and iterate. But that yep. doesn't seem like an option for you guys. This is a very much a a data-driven, like it's a feedback loop of what we're actually seeing in the marketplace. Now, what's interesting about uh, us as distinguished from, let's say, any other retail storefront proposition, right? And I, and I do view Spacious as kind of a retail storefront product. It's, it's a you know, street-level drop-in, walk-in any location. Um, any other retailer has to make pretty long-term bets and they have to get it right. What Spacious can do because we've got this kind of very nimble, nomadic hospitality operation that we can spin up in a vacant space either with a restaurant partner or with a complete vacant space, we can spin up things quickly. We can also spin them down quickly. So like we can be very responsive to what we're seeing on the demand side of our marketplace without necessarily burning too much cash in the process. You know, if Starbucks, for example, opens up a retail store and it fails, they're on the hook with a guarantee for their lease for 10, 20 years or whatever they, whatever they start with the landlord. We are, we have this, the same kind of mutually extinguishable license agreement, uh, that we can kind of really respond to what we're seeing on the other side of our marketplace. So, um, um, we should be able to, if we manage it right and we're reading the data properly, um, we should be able to manage, you know, how we grow our footprint in a f- pretty well-balanced way. It's much more like a real estate company in the tech world than many that profess to be that way in terms of ability to be responsive and develop product like a tech cycle. Yeah, I, I think it's a, the company really is a hybrid between the two. And I think, you know, this is an interesting kind of offshoot conversation around, you know, is it a tech company? Is it a real estate company? And what's the difference today? I think every company that exists in the world needs to be a tech company. And if you're not, you're missing a huge opportunity. Um, so we've designed our internal culture as a tech company. Um, and the product itself uh, depends upon our ability to have, you know, the data layer to study how our customers are using the network, which locations have the attributable subscriptions that make the P&Ls on site for that location make sense. And then as we learn about that, you can, you can predict 
uh, based upon what you know about your customers and where the demand is, where you should be putting locations, where you should be doubling down with more density. And we can do that really responsively. And unless you have the technology working for you, I don't think you can do that today. What I find interesting about this is is the excess capacity argument, right? It's, you started with restaurants, their downtime. Mm-hmm. And what you you have identified is that there's all these empty storefronts. Like there's a trend in retail where yeah. there's just less, there's availability of retail, right? Yeah. So a lot of conventional co-working spaces, they're classic commercial space, they're building it out, they're creating their version of community um, where you're delivering a service to both sides of the marketplace, not just creating a different version of office space. Yeah, it really is something different. And we've talked about this a lot, you know, is spacious co-working? And I think it really is something fundamentally different because co-working as, as we understand it, uh, at least from, from WeWork really creating the category um, or let's say making it a household name, um, it's another way to program an office. What spacious is is entirely different. It's almost like another third place, like the way that Howard Schultz thought about Starbucks. You know, spacious is kind of playing in that zone, recognizing that the one thing that people need almost ubiquitously today is a really solid Wi-Fi connection, right? More so than they need the cup of coffee at Starbucks, right? It's like if the Wi-Fi goes out at spacious, people like fall on the floor and look like they're choking from lack of oxygen versus if the coffee runs out, they can deal with it provided that they still have the internet connection, right? So there's a there's a really different approach to what people need when they're out and about in the city um, and what they can drop into and find uh, reliably and what they need as they're kind of moving around. You know, the, the bigger story that you're touching on there is this macro retail cycle, which is completely being disrupted by everything that has come in the wake of Amazon and, and direct consumer e-commerce. I mean, this is a whole podcast conversation in and of itself is right. what are we going to do with retail storefronts? Well, because one of your competitors recently partnered with a large mall mm-hmm. uh, owner um, yep. for their excess, you know, malls are in decline. You know, yep. that's in probably a you know, similar version of your retail, but yep. you could probably do the, a similar thing with a large just retail storefront, yep. you know, landlord. Yeah. I mean, the difference there, um, you know, is whether or not you're going to be in the suburban mall or whether you're going to be in the dense urban context, right? Spacious is really focused, at least for the for the foreseeable, you know, runway that we've got, we're really focused on dense urban core. Like, you know, the key intersections in Manhattan and the peninsula of San Francisco and when we launch, you know, Chicago and LA and Seattle and Portland, like the, you know, really getting the the vertical city uh, dialed in, right? As opposed to going out into the suburbs. And this is this is another kind of conversation that's interesting. So speaking of the suburbs, you know, most companies that uh, need density, like anything in the real estate space, obviously start with cities. But do you think there's ever going to be an opportunity to expand into to suburbs yeah. um, where, where you know, the economics are potentially very different and the mm-hmm. number of people in a given place is very different, but the need exists. Yeah. Personally, I felt that pain. I, yeah. I moved from the city to the suburbs and would commute in or work from home and yep. desire desperately something in between at times. Yeah, and that's where I think we actually have like – you know, to get the, the networked product while you're in the city, you got to get that first. But then it's almost like a hub and spoke model for the customer, right? So I think you're really um, servicing someone who has the option to either commute or not commute for that day, be able to meet them with a, lo- with a local spacious location where they live, but then also service, serve, serve them when they're bouncing around in the city, right? So like depending upon what kind of day they're having, is this a I want to walk from my front door down the street and meet the, you know, the local community of spacious members at that location and kind of work from there for the day. 
um, and then come home and, you know, uh, change a diaper and feed, feed the kids and walk the dog and then come back, you know, like have one of those days, we would love to be able to serve that. And I think we have a huge opportunity to do that. I think before you do that, and in addition to doing that, you also have to serve that same customer in the city when they come into the city. So it's like the freedom of movement from both of those contexts. We have the ability, I think, with the uniqueness of our supply side model to have that kind of a distributed footprint to say it's like a hub and spoke around the dense urban core and the rail connects or the commuter cities around that city um, to where the whole metro area becomes the footprint of spacious. Is there a minimum number of users, subscribers in a certain geographic area that you need in order to make a particular location viable? That's a good question. I mean, we know what we need to do on a per location basis, and we're learning um, as we watch the network evolve what those numbers are with demographic density, right? San Francisco is interesting because it's typically a low-rise residential city with maybe four stories, five stories in the kind of residential neighborhoods. Manhattan's just vertical, right? And so you can, you can probably do a shorthand analysis of any, any geography that works for spacious, flip the city on its side, look at the vertical density, and you can kind of see where you need to be. Um, as we start to learn more precisely who the customer is, how they're using the product, how far they're willing to travel to get to it, where they would prefer to have something nearby walkable versus when they need it when they're bouncing around with, you know, these are all things that I'd be, I'd be fibbing if I said that we know this perfectly today, but this is the data that we're gathering and it's what's going to make spacious very, you know, to have a competitive edge against those who are not studying these dynamics and, and watching our members use the network from the city, start to extend out into the suburbs is going to be a really, really interesting learning process. One last thing. Um, how do you when you enter a city? So you you mentioned the newer cities you're going to be going to. How do you get those initial that initial demand? Obviously, you have to mm -hmm. get the supply and initial restaurant yep. launches. But how do you go out and get that consumer to say I'm choosing spacious? Yeah, I mean the you know every new city that we launch is going to have uh, the advantage of having already established the brand in the in the core cities where we already exist. Um, you know, one of, there's a few different approaches there. I mean, we have a whole like demand team for spacious, right? We have a VP of growth and a brand and community manager, like director and like all those people who really own the acquisition funnel. Um, the strategy city by city is going to probably depend a little bit on the city itself and also depending upon how our product evolves with respect to becoming a multi-city product and addressing, let's say, a business traveler who frequents between multiple cities, right? So if we, let's say we launch Los Angeles, you know, next year, which is very much uh, part of the plan. Um, so, you know, before we launch Los Angeles, we're going to find who in our community frequents visiting Los Angeles and have them start to kind of pre-populate the community there. And, you know, and then we kind of have the supply team that goes out and identifies where in the metroplex of Los Angeles we need to have locations first. Um, you know, every city is a totally unique animal, right? But there's, there are large, you know, restaurant groups too, though. So you can have a partner in one city. You can also yep. be the partner in the next city too on the supply side. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, the, the next kind of retail, dedicated retail layer uh, kind of follows the restaurant layer. Like restaurants is a very capital light way for us to kind of, let's say, test a new geography and see if there's demand. And kind of going back to this data responsive approach to is there demand, should we stay there or should we double down and kind of make sure that, that we do that. So that's another part of, the, part of the process. Do you think as you enter a new city, does it have to be 
restaurant first and then retail complements it, or could you enter with retail first in a city? I think we do hybrids as we go. I mean, you know, we're gonna we're gonna we know enough even today to say with confidence that if we open a space in this particular geography or this intersection or this neighborhood, we know it's gonna pop off, right? Um, so getting that insight and knowing, like taking the obvious supply when you go to a new market, we can probably preemptively double down with a with a flagship location with you know twenty four seven access if we need one, and then we kind of add the density by still partnering with restaurants and getting the kind of the you know part of the part of the appeal I think is the variety of different contexts that you can use like the the cool aesthetic vibe of one neighborhood versus another one spacious restaurant versus another spacious restaurant um, you know that will always be part of our core identity and DNA is to be able to kind of do that and celebrate that local aesthetic we're gonna you know start to develop our own um, in these dedicated retail storefronts but it will always be contextually appropriate um, this is a little bit of a you know meandering answer to your question but I think hopefully that gets out of that. <laughs> no, I, I, this has been a you know a great conversation, uh, and I really appreciate you you know sharing your insights on you know how work co- you know co working and how people have that whole concept is changing dramatically. Up next, we'll talk a little bit less about spacious and a little bit more about you, Preston. Great, we'll be right back. Hey everybody, this is Vikram Iyer with the American Enough Podcast. And just wanted to thank all of you for listening and tuning in week after week. Uh, we are just on the precipice of clearing our one-year anniversary. And this has been an incredible journey and examination of who America really is against the, the headwinds of our modern times. If you are interested in the perspectives of mayors and how the identity of their cities is changing America's fabric, or how our foreign policy is changing the way that CIA agents do their business, or even how those brave enough to come forward and and stake a claim in the Time's Up or the Me Too movement, how their identities have have been changed by speaking out so publicly, Uh, or even if you're just interested in how Netflix documentarians are viewing the world and using satire and entertainment to cope with our current times, there is something for everybody across this channel, and uh, we hope that you continue to subscribe and like wherever you pod. American Enough can be found on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Google Play. Um, and if you have any feedback or have any ideas for more great show, never hesitate to, to email Vikram at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com or tweet at Vikram Iyer on Twitter. And uh, please keep spreading the word. This is not over anytime soon. Preston, we'd like to ask all of our guests a little bit more personal questions so the listeners can learn more about you beyond just uh, your company and, and what you're working on. And during this whole conversation, we've been talking about restaurants. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you're in multiple cities, not just New York. What are some of your favorite restaurants right now without <laughs> without alienating any of your, uh, your partners? Yeah, no. Um... I mean, look, there's there's two kinds of restaurants, I think, for a New Yorker. There's the one that's in your own neighborhood that's like your go-to staple and you're just like, okay, it's time for my wife and I to go out and have a nice dinner in, you know, where we can walk down the street. And uh, we live on the Upper West Side. Uh, one of our favorites is uh, a place called Jin Ramen. It's a Japanese ramen shop. It's right on, uh, it's right on Amsterdam Avenue. Uh, it's awesome. Um, and if I were to go – and then there's like, let's go out and explore um, – I couldn't tell you a specific one, but we really like uh, exploring a lot of the um, 
China, like the really authentic like Shanghainese restaurants out in Flushing and, and some other parts of the outer boroughs uh, that become you know really kind of, almost like a food uh, adventure right when you go out there. Um, yeah, so and, there's a few there. You know, so you, you kind of came up in the, the real estate industry, but did mm-hmm. you have an aspiration to be in the food world in some way? And and was this your backdoor way to get to know the chefs and yeah. restaurant owners, or was so, that never your intention? It's so funny. Like it's, I feel like I'm. Uh, you know, a lot of people would envy the uh, the you know the perceived access that I have to the restaurant world. I almost didn't have any interest in it <laughs> at all. You know, I, I I really love and appreciate good food, but I wouldn't self-identify as a foodie necessarily. Uh, I really am just a geek around cities and architecture, and I, I really when I walk into any space, um, I, I have a, a really uh, almost like a personal visceral reaction, uh, either positive or negative, to how that space has been designed, how it accommodates the people in it what it feels like in there and what's great about restaurants in particular and why they're, why they, they emerged as an obvious opportunity is that they are designed uh, from top to bottom to please all of the senses. Where do you think you developed that visceral reaction to architecture and design and, and space? Did that, yeah. were you always interested in that? Did you study it or did yeah. it come upon somewhere else? It's a great question. And I think it's always a bad idea to, to talk poorly of one's own hometown, but I grew up in uh, Houston, Texas. And from an urban planning perspective, Houston is a sprawling mess, right? And the sense of urbanism and connection to the city is so disconnected and so spread out and um, very siloed and segmented and and segregated. Uh, It's a very unique place. It's actually technically the most uh, diverse city in the United States. But you would never feel it if you're there because you go from your your suburb into some neighborhood or your job or your office and then you kind of go back out to that suburb and you just never really bump into anybody else who's not like you. And so for me, you know, the first time when I was, you know, a young adult visiting New York City and then traveling around Europe and seeing what can happen when you design a city well and it's functioning with all cylinders firing as a as a engine for innovation and diversity and intersection that's what really kind of turned the lights on for me that i said okay this is this is really fascinating to me um so i i would say that you know my baseline context was a kind of urbanism that i think was uh not ideal and it's almost like when, you have, when you're deprived of something your entire life and all of a sudden you're introduced to it at the right age. And I think I was the right age in maybe early 20s when I visited and actually lived in Barcelona for a short period of time. Um, Barcelona is one of the best planned cities anywhere on earth. And you know what happens there to the community and to the culture because of the way that the city is actually laid out, constructed, and the way that the architecture interacts with the people – that's where the lights went off for me. What are some of the things that you saw in Barcelona? Because um, that's that's a city that also has evolved over the years. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's got its old old Gothic district, you know, um, and then it's got the kind of the grid plan, right? Um, and then they have these big avenues where you've got uh, vehicle traffic uh, with a big promenade median in between it. And the retailers, the restaurants actually cross over that traffic and it creates this pedestrian, you know, uh, promenade in the middle of otherwise vehicle traffic. And the whole city is designed to make a very pleasant pedestrian walking experience. And you contrast that with Houston, which is basically hostile to pedestrians, right? It's like you literally cannot walk in Houston without for fear of your life being hit by a truck, 
and it will be a truck in Houston. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, you know, just how uh, the experience of walking around a city is for a person, I think, is a creates either a sense of well-being and connection and community, uh, or it creates alienation and, and uh, you know, a sense of uh, you know fear and, and and you know being blocked out. And I think that was a that, that that's something that I think architects are tuned into. Um, and I think I kind of tuned into that, uh, before I had the option to, uh, or before I was aware of it to decide that as a career for myself. Um, and so then I got into real estate because I wanted to kind of focus on that. I did do an apprenticeship with an architect for a full year. There's a great, great, uh, architect in Austin. His name is, uh, uh, there's, it's a firm, it's a family, uh, Mira Rivera architects. That's what he was used to work for there. They're fantastic. Really, really awesome design. One of the partners is from Barcelona, uh, coincidentally. Oh, wow. Yeah. So anyway, um, no, Barcelona is a beautiful city. So I can yeah. see where that, uh, was a mental trigger for you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But all like every city is totally unique, you know, like you kind of you bounce around Europe and you can see, you know, the difference of Amsterdam versus Berlin and London. They're all, they're all got their own completely different thing going on. And New York has its own energy too. It's a, it's an awesome you, place. Do you bring that into <clears throat> your decision making in addition to, you know, you know, turning the city sideways and looking at the density, you know, do you bring in how well planned it is into, into that argument? I mean, I think there's a, uh, for the spacious decision. For the spacious decision. Yeah. I think for spacious, it's, um. You know, it has to be a marketplace business decision. Um, and so you have to look at, I mean, there's a personal preference for what kind of a city I would like to walk around in and then where it might work best for spacious. Um, you know, Hong Kong, right? Incredible place. It's the most vertical city I've ever been in. They not only have one street level, they have an elevated second street level in that city, you know, suspended with escalators that kind of give you this next next level. Hong Kong isn't necessarily the most, it's fascinating and interesting and high energy and the food's amazing. Um but it's not the most pleasant pedestrian experience, right? Depending upon where you are and also depending upon what season it is, the climate is incredible. But it, it potentially works extraordinarily well for spacious when we're ready for that for that city. Um, so I, I would say vertical density, there's potentially an inverse relationship between vertical density and pleasant streetscape, right? If you walk down 6th Avenue in the 50s here in New York, it's a, it's a canyon, right? And it's potentially, you know, ominous and the, the scale is a little bit alienating for a single human. Um, but it's also impressive and inspiring. You know, you walk by the XYZ buildings in the fifties there and it's like, wow, this is like modernism from, you know, whatever the vision of modernism was when those buildings were constructed and it's, it's got its own thing there. So I don't know if this, this has got a little bit of a me meandering response, but like, you know, uh, it depends. You look, you look at it from, you know, what we know about our customer and how they would use a spacious network. Um, and you kind of, you know, you tune it, but I, I, you know, it's hard, it's hard to articulate, I think just because the layers of complexity are both personal and then business oriented. Right. And so you grew up in Houston, <laughs> you, you live in New York now, and you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, before we started the show that you lived a little bit in San Diego. Yeah. Where else in the world do you see yourself as wanting to spend some time or even plant some permanent roots? I love Japan. Um, I think Japan is a place where uh, urban planning has been uh, thought about from the top down and uh, the city's really uh, – everything like clicks together in Japan. I, I don't know how else to describe it. Um, you, know, you know, if you go to Kyoto and then you contrast that with Tokyo, right? You have this very old, uh, ancient kind of architecture and urbanism. You go into the upper residential neighborhoods of Kyoto and they have – literally like water channels running from the mountain runoff that is, was at the time, uh, that was their, uh, fire hydrant system, right? So the locals would like literally pull a bucket out of that stream and put out fires in the house. Um, 
But you walk around that neighborhood and it's the most pleasant thing on the planet, right? You walk around, there's the sound of running water in these beautiful channels with this old architecture in the context of kind of a mountain village. It's amazing. Um, I would love to spend some time there. Uh, and then Tokyo is just a, it's just a monster. Um, but it's still like clean and, you know, all the ways that Japan is great is expressed in Tokyo. Um, so anyway, I, I would love to spend some more time there. It's a little bit inaccessible for any Westerner to kind of really spend a lot of time in Japan. Uh, but given the opportunity, I would love to do that. Coincidentally, the Japanese press has covered spacious not less than like a dozen times. Like we're, we're all over Japan for some reason. I think, you, you don't have any locations in Japan, do you? We don't. And I'm, and I'm pretty sure they're just like, um, you know, working on how to, how to do it better there than, than we do it here. But, um, you know, it's a really, uh, I think they get, uh, how to maximize the efficiency of when the space is activated. And I think they've, they've really tuned into the concept from, from that angle, having to really make the most out of the real estate that they do have. Preston, we like to give all of our guests the opportunity to you know, leave us with a final thought. Uh, mm. what would you like to share with us today? I guess, I guess staying on topic, um, uh, I think cities are places where people can transform themselves and experiment with new identities and find the best version of themselves. And I think what I am very passionate about personally and what Spacious is working on from a mission perspective is really making that city experience to be able to come to the city and access the people, the resources, the capital, and to cultivate your own talents and skills. Spacious wants to lower the barrier to entry for that by offering a unique distributed access at a very, very low cost by the way that we're accessing our spaces. So that's, uh, that's the one idea I'd probably like to share. And for the folks that want to connect uh, with you and Spacious, what's the best way for them to reach out? Yeah, I would, I would encourage you to go to spacious.com and walk into any Spacious location. You don't need a reservation. Just walk in when we're open for business. Uh, you can check the schedule and the locations there. You can also just reach out to me on Twitter if you want. I, it's at uh, Preston Pesek, my first and last name. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was a, a great conversation. Uh, and for – I'll retake that. <laughs> my name's so, Scott. I, I thank the listener. Um, yeah. um, suggestion? I wish Preston good luck on you know the next steps or next path. Thank the listener and go to Scott. Yeah, Preston, best of luck with with everything and uh, your new expansion into uh, retail beyond you know the initial restaurant experience. Uh, and thanks to everyone uh, as always for listening, and for Scott. Bye everyone. I'm Tom, and real estate is your business. You've been listening to Real Estate Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for this show or to become a sponsor, email us at realestatebizshow at mouthmedianetwork.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Real Estate Biz Show. That's Real Estate B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, realestateisyourbusiness.com. Produced by Mouth Media Network and brought to you by Preview. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thanks for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.